The coronavirus pandemic brought the importance of public health to the forefront of national attention. While the COVID-19 related shutdowns at first significantly slowed the number of births in the U.S., the birth rate is expected to surge later this year. There will likely be close to 4 million births in the U.S. in 2021, the, mass, the vast majority of which will be safe for both mother and child. More than 700 mothers, however, die each year in the U.S. from pregnancy and birth-related complications. An astonishing two-thirds of these deaths are preventable. For change to occur, managed care organizations must first recognize the inherent biases embedded into traditional healthcare practices. That was Elisa Arabobo, an obstetrician, gynecologist, and medical director of operations for the South Carolina-based OB Hospitalist Group, reading from her first opinion essay, Managed Care's Role in Protecting Women from Childbirth-Related Complications. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. The demands of innovation are evolving faster with each new discovery. At Cytiva, we evolve with you, using flexible, modular solutions to shorten the time to the next milestone and to market. Learn more at Cytiva.com slash cell therapy. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A.com forward slash cell therapy. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. Welcome, Elisa. Thank you. I am happy to be here. Were you delivering babies all through the pandemic? I was. I was at the hospital. Um, for those moms who continue to come to our hospitals, um, we did their deliveries. There were a few moms scattered in there anecdotally that we heard would deliver at home or chose to do home births or chose to go to other states for their delivery. I'm married to a certified nurse midwife who was delivering babies all through the pandemic, and, and it was sometimes fraught with tension. It, it was very fraught with tension because you were restricted as to who could come into the room. You're restricted as to how you had to birth because you had to do it with a mask. Um, you could not use nitrous oxide that was not available because of how it flows through the system and that could affect everyone else in the room. Um, it was different because you ne couldn't necessarily have a doula with you at some some places. We just couldn't do it because um, we couldn't confirm. We didn't know. We couldn't test everyone. Um, then there was testing that needed to be done, testing prior to you coming in, testing when you arrive. Um, it depended on how your hospital had it set up. For a lot of women, if you were a scheduled C-section delivery, how you were set up to be able to have your testing done before. And it was just a different workflow for the nurses, for the physicians, and of course, for all our patients that were involved and them having to adjust. Some adjusted well, some did not. Some were a little frustrated because it wasn't what they had expected. It wasn't what they had envisioned for their birth. Are you finding things easing up a little bit? I do. I feel that more and more women are starting to feel like, okay, I have a little more freedom. Um, we're allowing their doulas to be at their bedside. We're allowing them to have their partners in the room while they're having their birth. 
they are able to, of course, even just moving around in the hallways, that was somewhat restrictive then too. If you were trying to do a natural birth and where were you walking? You were just walking in circles in your room at times. So now there's a little bit more freedom that's available for our patients. So your first opinion focuses on the high rate of maternal deaths in the U.S. It's higher than any other industrialized country. Somewhere between 700 and 900 mothers die from pregnancy and childbirth-related complications each year. And you wrote that more than two-thirds of those deaths are preventable. When it comes to pregnancy and childbirth, what makes some deaths preventable and others not? It's generally early diagnosis or recognizing a diagnosis of a patient. And we have patients that may not necessarily um, follow up, but if you have a diagnosis for that patient, then it turns the table on who's doing the follow-up and making sure this patient is doing what they should for their care. Um, and, and for some patients, they do have follow-up and we recognize that there are certain um, pre-existing conditions that need to be examined closer and maybe earlier on in their pregnancy. And these are things that we are taught as evidence-based and looking at your patient population that you're caring for and following them carefully, looking at their, their blood pressures, when you test them for diabetes, when you're looking at their weight control, when you're looking at the stressors that they're dealing with, these are all things that are somewhat preventable so that physicians early on in a care, we as hospitalists seeing them in OBED or OB triage, when we see that diagnosis or we're making that early diagnosis, these are things that we need to explain to our patients, discuss it with them, educate them, and let them understand these are things that we're looking for and these are things that we want you to look for at home when you're taking care of yourself. So someone with high blood pressure or high blood sugar or uh, maybe gaining too much weight, those are early warning signs? They can be for certain patients. A lot of patients may pre-existing have high blood pressure issues that weren't necessarily diagnosed. And now that she's become pregnant, we look at her blood pressures, what they were prior to and what they are now. And you look at those numbers and you kind of track and trend. And as you see her in your office or you see her in OB triage and OBED, there are certain parameters that you're looking at to make sure, is she in that parameter? Is she someone that could possibly be a preeclamptic? And for these patients, making sure you educate them. This is what your blood pressure should look like. This is what we're looking for. These are some of the symptoms that can happen with elevated blood pressures or for even diabetic patients. These are some of the things that you may experience. Is preeclampsia just high blood pressure or is there more to it than that? Well, preeclampsia is a pathophysiology issue. We don't really know what can be the trigger, but we do understand the pathophysiology of what happens when it comes to preeclampsia and what other organs can be affected for these patients. So when you look at a blood pressure, you can't just look at one blood pressure. You look at a series of them and you look at their labs. You see what's happening with their labs. If their labs are normal, but their blood pressures continue to be elevated, there's certain categories that these moms then fall into that you then still will track and trend them, even if their labs are normal. What are some of the complications that that can cause uh, severe disability or death during pregnancy and after child, during or after childbirth? If we talk about preeclampsia in particular, with preeclampsia, you're increased risk for stroke, you increase risk for kidney failure, you're increased risk for permanent brain damage for some patients, you're increased risk for preterm delivery, you're an increased risk for death. So these are certain things that you really are trying to 
not scare the patient, but let them be educated on it. These are some of the things that hopefully as we work together, we can prevent this for you. We can watch it. We can go through it with you. You must have delivered lots of babies and cared for lots of women during pregnancy and childbirth. Can you recall a time when you were most worried? Yeah, I can recall plenty of times um, where I've had patients who, um, when I was in practice, she, I had a preeclamptic patient and we acted early on her delivery, but her body did not recover after delivery. And we had to transfer her to a higher level of care to their ICU because her, her kidney failure was worsening and she was unable to really recover um, from the injury of being preeclamptic. Um, as she did recover in the ICU with that transfer of care early on, she did well and had no sequelae. But at the time of this happening, you're trying to make sure you bring everyone into the fold and talk to those who are needed and, and making that decision. Does she need to be transferred? Yes. Or should she stay at your facility? Um, it's, it's one of those things that you really have to act accordingly and really look at what your data is showing you when it comes to her vital signs, her labs, what's happening with her. Is she improving? Is she not? And really be able to, to advocate for her care if she needs to be transferred. It must be emotionally traumatic for everybody. It, it must be just a kind of a, a whole sequence of emotional traumas. It is. And, and that's why we debrief after all of these deliveries when we have them to really understand and learn from it and glean from it. Because then you're, as you educate yourself, understand more and more, you're able to help that next patient. You're able to help more patients. And, and it is traumatic. Are deaths the tip of the iceberg here? I saw a report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that severe complications occur to about 50,000 women each year. That's, you know, 140-some a day. And a a report from uh, ProPublica and NPR suggests that might even be an underestimate. What's the time frame for complications? Well, the time frame varies. We generally say from the time that she's made that diagnosis to about six weeks after she's been delivered, now even 12 weeks after she's been delivered in the preeclampsia diagnosis, she can continue to have issues or concerns that will have her readmitted to the hospital for preeclampsia. So this is where, and I'm glad you bring up CDC and NPR's report because that is showing there's a huge, huge um, supportive factor that's that we really need to get to the root cause of for when it comes to postpartum care and the whole care for moms. And that's extending that insurance for those patients who are on some form of Medicaid past that 12 weeks, going for that entire year for these moms, because then they need the care. They need to be able to be seen. They need to have follow-up. They need to be able to see their physician when their blood pressures are elevated. And is it this now, is this a time now we bring up pre-existing conditions that are now diagnosed at the time of her delivery, and she needs follow-up with other specialists. So this appears to be another, no, it doesn't, it doesn't appear. This is another area in medicine with racial or ethnic disparities. How does that play out? Absolutely. And this plays out in, in how we look at the distribution of insurances, correct? You know, it's commercial, versus Medicaid, versus HMO, versus all of them that we all try to be a part of. And when it comes to the socioeconomic and we scratch the socioeconomic out and we just look at what it is that they need 
to be able to care for themselves through their pregnancy and afterward, that's where the disparities then start to fall into play. Because then you see a majority of, of our individual patients that are spread across all insurance carriers and you bring in Medicaid and you see what, what care is provided, what's needed and what's actually afforded. Because then it's a matter of, can I get approval for this, for this patient? Is this going to be approved? Is this medication going to be approved for her? Is she going to have to pay things out of pocket for this? What are we doing to support our moms and our black and brown moms and even our indigenous moms? Our indigenous moms as well deal with a lot of issues that we don't even know because we don't even track and trend their data. You know, it's just a lot of things that kind of just kind of bubble under the surface because we don't necessarily track it. And there's so many other categories in this space that we haven't even talked about yet. Are the disparities in care an issue of bad apple clinicians who are, you know, have implicit um, uh, biases or is it an institutional problem or both? I think it's both. I think it's both. You look at your training that you've been, and for a lot of physicians, it was based on antidotal. Oh, for these set of moms, they don't have, they don't necessarily have this issue. Or for this set of moms, they're usually okay. You don't have to worry about them. And those are all antidotal things, you know, and it carries over from the residency over into practice. And, and even for some of our nurses, when they go through training as well, um, I remember a time where I, had a patient as I asked, is she okay? How's she doing? Oh, we don't know. Oh, okay. Did we get an interpreter to find out? No, we didn't get an interpreter to find out. You know, these are just minor things that can really help. And, and, and it bridges the gap of that communication and understanding. And instead of it being antidotal, now it's evidence-based. It's evident that if I get a translator, I'm going to understand what's going on with my patient. So these are just certain things that... As, as we continue to understand, as we continue to grow, as we continue to really look at our own biases as physicians, because we all have them. And that's where I think people need to realize we all have them. We're human beings. But as we learn to educate ourselves, understand that you're now going to open up the door in that line of communication, that line of understanding, that line of empathy for all patients that you come in contact with. And that in itself will help the institution, will help the physician, will help the nurses, everyone that's involved. Do seeing these disparities and, and differences and failures, does that make you mad or frustrated or? No, it doesn't make me frustrated. Does it want me, does it make me want to help in the situation? It does. Does it make me want to say, hey, how can we educate? How can we do better? How can we make things better? Yes. Can it sometimes make you kind of take a step back and say, wow, that's my colleague that's doing that? Yes. But at the same time, it, it should also spark in you a way to say, how do I talk with you to help you understand? Because everyone is different. So we need to really understand that patient that's a frequent flyer that we all say frequent flyer. Is she really a frequent flyer or is she really a call for help? Is she, does she really just need someone to talk to and understand what her diagnosis is? What's going on with her pregnancy? Maybe she's dealing with, she doesn't understand how to do her appointments and be able to take care of her kids. And she just can't seem to get through that. And that's why she uses the OB triage as her way of getting care. 
What's it like having the conversation with someone who doesn't believe he or she needs to have the conversation? <laughs> it's quite difficult. Um, it, it's not easy. It is not an easy conversation. And even when you bring up just as far as evidence and you discuss with them about these are some of the things that really seem to work and this is not working. Um, And if you really try to bring in data, a lot of times data is the driving home message for a lot of folks. Once you Hmm. can see the data, then they can understand it a little bit better and be more accepting of, yeah, change needs to happen. But to bring it to them as saying, as a far as like empathy or caring, you know, oh, it would be really nice if you could listen to the patient, you know, oh, maybe we should get an interpreter for her. Some some are able to accept it, some may not. But it is, like I say, it's a slow process. So it's it's clear that neither wealth or status or profession will protect someone from complications of childbirth. Um Shalon Irving was a lieutenant commander in the U.S. Public Health Service who died of heart failure just a few weeks after giving birth. Shanice Wallace was a chief pediatrics resident in Indiana. She died a couple days after giving birth. Uh, Tennis star Serena Williams and her high-profile blood clots in her lungs. Um, In May, Joy Cooper, an OBGYN, wrote a first opinion entitled my work as a black OBGYN tempered my joy as I prepared to give birth, in which she describes going to great lengths during the COVID-19 pandemic to handpick a team of black clinicians that she knew and trusted for her baby's birth. This seems to be a topic that's on the minds of mostly black women. There's a lot of information out there that Black and brown moms are trying to empower themselves with to decrease that risk of death or long-term sequelae after having their first child or second child or even their fifth. And they're really just trying to keep themselves safe. And it is a way of kind of, I guess you would say, arming yourselves with those that are familiar with you and familiar with your issues and concerns and in them being able to look at that and put that in the forefront versus kind of not necessarily putting that in the front of their mind when it comes to you as a patient. So it, it is one of those things that you're starting to see more and more of. Um, here in California, you have a large group of Black doulas who are really trying to be patient advocates um, for a lot of moms out here to really make sure the physicians are hearing exactly what the patient's concerns are. Do you understand These are the things that I've gone through. This is my past. This is my trauma. Can you hear what I'm talking about? You know, I have a friend who, you know, goes to, she went to the ED and was completely ignored and she's a physician and she's like, okay, they're completely ignored me. It's like, I'm a physician. And I said, are you serious? And she said, yeah. They were like, oh, you're fine. Go home. (laughs) She's like, okay. Yikes. You know, these are certain things that do happen and you are correct. It's not the socioeconomic. It's just the understanding of looking at the patient and not putting them in co- categories. You can't. We're all different. You, you all, We all know that. But then we start to put a spin on it when we see the color of their skin or we see how they're dressed. Maybe she was coming from the gym. You have no idea. Why would you look, look at her any different? 
And these are certain things, like I say, these biases, once you can take that out of your mind and just look at the person for what the person is, then you get past that and you can take care of the patient. As we were chatting before we started recording, you mentioned that you have children of your own. Were these concerns of yours when you were pregnant? Um, They weren't concerns of mine. I was surrounded by my fellow residents who were of different races as well. And we were at a facility that we had such a huge, diverse culture. Um, And we really had a lot of these things that were happening there at our hospital uh, where I delivered. And we really wanted to make sure that everyone received the best of care. We truly advocated for one another, not to mention, and I was just talking about this to a few other folks, um, in residency, my class was the class that had kids. So we all took care of each other. We all knew what we had to do. And, and we advocated for each other. We took care of one another to make sure that everything was going to be okay in our birth plan, whatever that plan happened to be. Are there some hospitals or organizations that you think are doing great work in this area? And what kind what kinds of things are they doing? Yeah, there's a, a lot of hospitals that are that are really coming through the forefront of this. Um, the it, not necessarily a hospital right now, but so the, Minnesota just passed um, a grant for about three hundred thousand dollars to look at what their maternal um, mater- mortality rates are there. Nevada is also coming up in the ranks of trying to really help in decreasing that that rate. Texas overall, for them, they've passed a legislation, which is called maternal leveling for their hospitals to really make sure their hospitals are, are really coming up to understanding what kind of care they're providing on different levels. And we have different levels that we do care for patients. And in that level requires certain requirements. So are you meeting the requirements for your particular leveling for these patients? So that's what's going on legislative-wise. Some other hospitals I seem to be doing pretty well is really on the East Coast. Um, Oh, it's in Boston, actually, for you guys, is out of one of the Harvard hospitals. They're doing a reverse in how they're looking at caring for patients of matern- in, in the maternity mortality rate. Um, hmm. So they're doing something in reverse. Instead of saying this is the plan, they're asking the patients for like a plan. So that was something I saw in the news that I thought was pretty different. Um, and then, of course, a lot of hospitals are are trying to really bring home on implicit bias training. Um, but then, it, of course, with that, you can do the training, but then there's the follow-up. That also needs to come with that as well. So I think a lot of hospitals are understanding there's a lot of work to be done and they're trying to really um, come up to what should be done for patients overall. One of the things that you mentioned in your essay was if the population of caregivers look like the population, there are few, uh, relatively few black um, physicians, midwives, nurses, they're not represented in the in the population. People are doing all sorts of things to increase that pipeline, but that's going to take a long time. What what sorts of things need to or can be done in the interim? Um, I think it's more of it. Still goes back to more training and education because, of course, like you say, it's going to take time to see that shift change where we see a more diverse population of physicians, nurses. 
um, midwives, nurse practitioners, doulas, all of that. It's going to still take <clears throat> quite a bit of time to get there. But as we build to that, this is where you're building certain residency programs to make sure, are you looking at the dynamics of who's coming through there? Um, are you considering all those things? And it doesn't have to be anything as far as affirmative action, but just really looking at what what's in your pipeline, who's a good potential, who's a good candidate, and really just making sure that we're looking at what we're caring for and who we're caring for. It's okay to have those tough conversations. It's okay to say, you know, I really just don't understand all of this. Why is there so much behind it? It's okay for someone to ask that question. They may not know. And if they don't know and they want to know, that's a great opportunity for anyone to take advantage of that and say, well, let's talk about it. What don't you know? And what can I do to help you? And as other physicians like myself or physicians of indigenous populations, all of us, we all are working together to really open up that can of worms and have those discussions. And, and I think this is where um, data comes in to help us. When we see the data, when we see what's happening and we look at it and we try to scale it down to what's happening at our own hospitals, that's something that really is can be, it can be a huge winner and people understanding it and understanding what's happening and oh, why you're having this conversation. Oh, that's why. It's the data that really can drive everything. Are you hopeful that the U.S. can do a better job keeping mothers and babies safe and that the gap in complications between black and white mothers will be shrunken? I'm hopeful that it will. We have a lot of legislation that's pending to really decrease that gap. Um, and, and hopefully with the legislation that's being passed, that we will start to see better outcomes for our moms and that we will see that the education and the understanding has increased and it won't be something that's put on the back burner um, for some facilities and it's more in the forefront. Elisa, thank you for the work you're doing to keep mothers and their babies safe and healthy during pregnancy and beyond. Thank you. I enjoy it. I can tell. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Our senior producer is Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke. Please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And please put podcast in the subject line. And if you have a minute, I'd really appreciate you reviewing or rating the podcast on whichever platform you use to get it. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time. <laughs>